0: I'm on. Yeah. All right. So we have been talking about our giving this year and where our giving goes. So we we uh, have shared this with you. But as a church, when you give, we also give 10% of it away, right? And so as we teach tithing, as we believe God calls us to give and to tithe, that we as a church we also give money away outside of our church. And we've been introducing you to organizations that we've either supported last year or this year. Uh, And this morning, um, I didn't get a graphic from them, but uh, you can look them up on ninemarks.org. It's uh, the, uh, the number 9marks and then the word marks.org. Um, but 9marks has uh, been around for about 26 years, and their entire goal is to resource churches to be healthy churches. The word 9marks comes from nine things that they see as needed uh, to be a healthy church. Elders is one of them. Deacons is another one of them expository preaching, which we do, like going through scripture, letting the point of the text be the point of the message, that kind of thing. We see these things as key to being a healthy church, evangelism, discipleship, all those kind of things. And so they exist to resource churches to be healthy churches. Uh, they've been a benefit to me. I meet with some of the leaders uh, every quarter. Uh, they kind of pour into and contribute to, to just caring for pastors and uh, books that they've written, our deacons have used one of their books, our elders have used uh, a couple of them, just really good resources. And so their whole mission is to resource churches to be healthy churches so that all across the globe, that there'll be healthy churches. And so um, I asked for some prayer requests as we began to support them this year. And I talked to the uh, the leader of, uh, one of the leaders of, the, of Nine Marks, and then one of the uh, one of the key writers, Ryan Townsend, is one of their leaders. He said that I was just praying that they would be faithful to their mission this year. Um, They're starting a two-year conversation on what will happen next for them. The guy, Mark Dever, who founded Nine Marks, is 63 years old, and so he's not super old, but he's not super young either, and so they're starting this kind of two-year conversation about what does it look like on the other side of him and, and his leadership and how will that go? He asked for prayer for that. Um, They're a small team going through a lot of transitions. They have nine full-time people. Three of them are leaving. Two of them are leaving to become full-time pastors. One doing something else. So they have three full-time people leaving and three full-time people coming in. So for a team of nine full-time people with some part-time folks, that's a lot of transition. It's a third-year team. Uh, Jonathan Lehman's a pretty popular author, uh, writing a lot. He's editing a new church ser- uh, series on church-centered missions, and about, it's about faithful evangelism, churches, discipleship, and mission. And so he asked for prayer for that. And so we're going to, we've begun to support them. You can look them up if you want to find out more about them. If you missed that, it's ninemarks.org. Uh, let me know. But I wanted to pray for them this morning. We'll pray for our message and we'll get started. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you that you have blessed us and that we can be a blessing to others. Got to think all the way back to Genesis 12 as you call Abraham to follow you and be faithful to you. And you tell him, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to others. And Lord, we feel that privilege. That because you have blessed us, we get to bless others. Because we are here, uh, because our folks are generous, because we have, we get to give away. And Lord, I want to keep sharing that with the church because it is their money, our money. And Lord, I get the the joy of calling people and telling people, hey, we're going to support you. But it really should be a a joy that is celebrated and, and a group that should be prayed for. By all of us. And so we pray for Nine Marks. They're editing that big series coming up. It's going to take quite a while to put together. We pray for their transitions. And we pray for this conversation, though. It's super important. I don't think we all get... I think many of us don't understand how important it is after having a very charismatic, a very winsome, a very popular leader to know that, that his day will come where someone else has to lead behind him. And that's, it's a big deal. In order to see an organization move on beyond its key leader, And so we pray for them as they start this conversation. Lord, thank you that they have been a great resource to us as a church. Thank you that some of those leaders have been uh, good friends to me, Lord, and I thank you for that. Thank you for the work they do globally to help churches become healthy churches. Lord, as we open your word today, we seek to be just that, to be a healthy church, to be a local church here that is governed by your word, that is led by your spirit, that is faithful to your scriptures, that does and accomplishes or seeks to do the will, Jesus, that you gave to us to be your witnesses here in the world, to make disciples of all people, to baptize and teach and, and a disciple so that your gospel is embedded here locally. As we seek to multiply leaders, disciples, and churches, Lord, help us as we open your word to draw near to your calling for us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen you guys would, turn to Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's one on underneath the chairs in front of you. If you borrow a Bible, I can get you there quick. Page 916 is where you're going. We have been in Acts now for a few weeks, and one thing uh, that we've talked about, or a key thing that we've talked about, is the centrality of the Holy Spirit to the church. What does that mean, and and how is that either ignored or, or uh, used wrongly? What happens, and and so what do we see in scriptures? Let scripture govern what we understand, especially about topics where there's so much uh, dis- differences in different places. And so we've been we've seen a couple of things. First, that the Holy Spirit takes a central role in building up the local church by converting people by seeing people come to faith, that the Spirit actually leads them to following Jesus. So we we saw this empowering of conversion, especially around Pentecost. And then we saw this building up of the community called the local church. Then when you come to faith, that we, all of us, are called to not just come to faith and follow Jesus, but to be a part of a local church. That the expectation is that we will grow in a community, a particular community, And in that church, that local church is going to be flawed because there's no perfect churches. Because there's no perfect people. There's no perfect pastors. Slow down on the amens on that one. Don't all jump in all at once. But if there was a perfect church, none of us would be welcome in it, right? Because we're imperfect. And so you're called to be a part of something imperfect for your own good and for the glory of God. We call that the local church. And that the Holy Spirit, one of the amazing things the Holy Spirit does is draws together a diverse group of people, people that would otherwise have nothing in common, and it calls them to be a family of families. And so as we continue, we're just going to look at some of the things the Holy Spirit does today. I want to give you a main idea. Today, there's more notes and verses than normal. They're all in the app if you need them. The word of the Holy Spirit, Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit leads people to faith, teaches them the truth, empowers them to share the gospel, and exalts him, Jesus. Acts shows us how. So today what I want to do is I want to tell you, I take a lot of the words, the teachings about, of Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, and I want to partner them with the chapter that we're in, in Acts. And so next slide, please. So in Jesus speaking, in John 3 says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it requires the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus. Right, The Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus, keeps us in Jesus, teaches us what we're to do in Christ, sends us on a mission for Jesus, and empowers us to accomplish that right? Teaches us what scripture says, all those things. So Jesus says, you can't do this apart from the spirit. Acts chapter one, we're going to start in verse three. By the way, Pastor Amaldi was up here encouraging you to take notes, which I would encourage you to do at the end of the message, not the end of service, but the end of message. I'm going to take three to five minutes to just share what is a takeaway? What is something you heard today that you want to apply to your life. And you just share that with somebody around you. So be prepared for that as we work through this. Acts 8 verse one. And Saul approved of his execution. Talking about Stephen's from last week. And there arose on that great day a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation or mourning over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That word dragged right there, if you're in that Leadership Mondays group, right? We talked about draw or drag. Same word, just so you guys know. That's just for like 12 of you. But, uh, so here's where we are. The death of Stephen happened last week. The first Christian martyr. The Hellenist controversy kind of gives this division of Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews, and there's been a problem with the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and now the Greek-speaking Jews, they're, they're starting to give problems to the Christians as well. And, and they challenge Stephen, and Stephen stands up for his faith. He, he proclaims this kind of like Old Testament survey gospel, if you will leading all the way to Jesus and their culpability in the death of Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, but that Jesus lived and that he died at the hands of human leadership, but that he was resurrected from the grave to give us life. And so Stephen stands up for the gospel of truth and then is stoned to death by those religious leaders. And so it's, it's right there at the end of that, that we're introduced to a man named Saul who is persecuting the Christian church. We'll talk about him next week. If you don't know who that is, that'll be fun. Most of you know that that Saul becomes a major player in Christianity. And so we'll look at that next week. But the persecution now is on the church in new ways. We saw as the first arrest and warning happened back here and then an arrest and a beating here and now the death of Stephen and now at the risk of their own lives Christians are being chased out of Jerusalem. It says, on that day there arose a great persecution against the church. Now, here's how God uses that. It also says, and they went down, or it says they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. If you remember all the way back in Acts 1-8, final words of Jesus, wait here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power, and then you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? Right? And so as they've grown to be tens of thousands of Christians in and around Jerusalem, now persecution is actually pushing them out into the places that Jesus says they were to go to begin with. Now, is that happening because they were resisting going, or is that just kind of how it turns out? I don't know. But what I can tell you is for sure, persecution pushes them outside of Jerusalem. And God in his sovereignty and providence uses that to reach the people of Judea Samaria, and ultimately will go out beyond that. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So Philip preaches the word or Christ, right? So his message is about Jesus as Philip, if you remember him from Acts 7, from Acts 6, excuse me, he was one of those that were selected to help solve the Hellenist widow issue, right? Right? most likely the first deacons. But he was put into that role, as was Stephen. Now he's been chased out of Jerusalem, and he is proclaiming, or he's preaching the word. Now the word doesn't just mean scripture. He is proclaiming the good news of God about Jesus. And so as he goes, he is doing that. He's fulfilling, literally, the commission that Jesus gave the church, right? So we want to just keep an eye on this. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit? So here's a a note for you. The word of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells the life of the believer to empower us to speak or be witnesses, as Jesus said, about our living Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's the, here's the point. The message, the, the proclamation of Jesus, the, the sharing the gospel with others is a spiritual work, right? It's not a human story with a human you know, understanding for a human outcome. It is a, a, it's God's word, it's God's message, it's good news about Jesus, our Savior, who is God, right? And it, and it requires the Holy Spirit to both empower the speech and empower the hearer for anything to happen, right? It can't be that I just share with you something so well that it changes your life. I don't have that kind of power, right? These amens are coming really quick about me. Just any, anyway, All right, so, but it's true, right? Like, it, it requires that God use my words in this circumstance. And uses your ears or your heart, whatever metaphor you want to use in that place, right? In order for the gospel to change you. And that's what Philip's doing. He's, he's going out and led by the Spirit, speaking empowered by the Spirit, he is proclaiming Christ. And so Acts 1.8, here's what we said, we've already quoted it, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's Acts one eight, Right? And so now we see Philip, he's living into that, empowered by the Spirit. Spirit falls on the of Jerusalem. They stay, they go. He's proclaiming God's word, preaching Jesus to other people. Verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city." So Philip is established by the Holy Spirit and power, right? Just as we saw Jesus doing in his earthly ministry, spent three years in earthly ministry, in, in human ministry, and vocational ministry, if you will. Like his first thirty years, he's kind of in obscurity. He then goes into ministry. He's kind of an itinerant preacher, healer, rabbi, travels from town to town, proclaiming the message of the kingdom, healing people, right? And it's that those kind of things that established that he was sent by God. Now, it can't be that alone. It can't be just the miraculous alone that establishes him. We're going to see why that is later on today, but it got people to stop and listen so that he could proclaim the message of the kingdom. That was also true of the apostles, right? We saw that in Acts 3. Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. They see a man who's never walked before, and they heal him, and it draws a crowd, and immediately they begin to share the gospel of those who come. So this miraculous thing happens, catches the attention of people, lets them know, hey, something's going on here, and that opportunity becomes the the place or the venue to share the gospel. And so Philip now, chased out by persecution, is kind of following that pattern. And so God is using him, or the Spirit is empowering him to do that in this new context, so that people will come and hear the gospel for the first time. Verse six, excuse me, verse nine. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Yeah, that should catch your attention. Simon they say, this man is the power of God that is called great. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Okay, so who does Simon glorify in his magic? We'll just use that word, right? Himself, himself right? People are saying, this guy is endowed with the power of God who is great. Now, what God they're talking about, we're not sure. We don't know what that means, but he's clearly drawing attention to himself. Now, let's contrast that with, with Philip. Philip is preaching the word and pointing to Christ, and people are seeing what he's doing, but he's, and he's doing things that are catching people's attention. He's doing something. There's something going on that's extraordinary outside of normal human things, and so they're seeing the miraculous. They're seeing this, but he's then pointing them to Jesus, where Simon has some kind of magic trick going on. He's got something going on. He's from here. The people know him, but as he does something, he points to himself. You see the difference? Just note that not all the miraculous is good, right? Think of Pharaoh back in Egypt when Moses goes in and God has given him signs to do and then some of the magicians do some of the same signs, right? Not all the miraculous or not all that we see is of God. That's important, right? There are many, many, many so-called churches out there that are doing things that are not from God. Right, that are that are doing things that are actually deceptive and misleading people. Right? And 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 that's for another day, but you get the point. Here, Philip points to Jesus. Simon points to himself, but Simon's doing things that are amazing, awe-inspiring, magic, or miraculous, whatever you want to use there. Verse 12. But when they, meaning the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip continues to preach the kingdom, just like Jesus did, and Jesus, right? Just as he was called to be a witness to a living Jesus, and the people believe in Jesus, not Philip, right? They come to faith, they begin to follow Jesus, not Philip, right? So here's another note for you. Put this up. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? We're trying to focus in on what the Holy Spirit does, right? So the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit causes us to exalt Jesus and not ourselves. Empowered by the Spirit, we glorify Christ, right? That's the difference. Philip is glorifying Jesus. Philip, empowered by the Spirit, is doing things, but rather than taking the attraction, the credit, the glory for himself, he takes all that and he points everybody up to Jesus opposite of what Simon is doing. So here's what Jesus says in John 15. Next slide. Oh, you already got it. So, but when the Helper comes, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. What does the Holy Spirit do? Bears witness about Jesus. Exalts Jesus. It's written a little different. uses the word exalts in Luke. I think it's Luke 12, right? The Spirit will exalt Christ. The idea of the Holy Spirit is, is not even the Holy Spirit is drawing attention to himself. The Holy Spirit is drawing attention to and focused. to to Jesus, our Savior, God who lived and died and rose from the dead, right? And so the Holy Spirit causes us to lift up to Jesus too, for us to point to Jesus, us to glorify Jesus. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The language here is interesting says, now Simon believed and was baptized. But it says he follows around Philip, and he's amazed not by who Philip preaches, but by what Philip does. You with me? Right? So his, he's, he's believed, he's been baptized. But we can already tell right now, and, and probably wouldn't even notice this necessarily if the rest of the chapter wasn't written about this. But it bears us, because of what is coming up, it bears on us to see that though it says he believed and it says he got baptized, I want you to notice where he has fixed his eyes, right? He continues to watch the things that Philip does, not look to the person Philip is glorifying, okay? He's just a click off, if you will, a big click, but a click off, just the same. Verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not fallen on any of them, the Samaritans, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So notice the purpose of the apostles' visit, right? Right? The gospel has gone out. They've believed the good news about Jesus, right? And so they've heard that Samaria is starting to have what a short form and say. Starting, there's going to be a church in Samaria, right? They're starting to have some believers that are gathering because they're starting to follow Jesus together, and they know Philip's there, and they hear about this. And so two of the apostles leave Jerusalem, and they head to Samaria because they heard that they had been following him, but the Holy Spirit had not empowered this people group yet, right? This, this group of people that are gathered around Jesus. So the Samaritans had come to faith, but had not received that kind of indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit, meaning their faith is in Jesus, but their power to live for him isn't there yet, okay? Now you got to remember, we're in the beginning of Acts, right? The gospel is first taking root. In fact, it's for the first time, it's taking root in a people that are not in Jerusalem. And so it's, it's moving. And for the first time, it's an apostle that's not an apostle that's sharing it, right? You've basically got a deacon from the Jerusalem church who's been chased out of town and who is now sharing the gospel out here. And what's happening is the apostles are kind of following it because they hear that there's something maybe missing in this gospel proclamation. Does that make sense a little bit? I'm often kind of critical of the American Christian church gospel, right? That a lot of times the gospel here in the Western church or in the American church is shared like if Jesus did this to forgive your sin, and if you say this prayer, you get to go to heaven, and that's it. Like, I and mean, it kind of hovers around that, right? All good things, all true things, right? Maybe minus the prayer part, but still, the prayer is good. But if you do this, then this kind of misses the idea, well, what about the rest of my life? What about today? Because I did this thing back here, and let's just say I prayed that prayer and then was obedient to the call to be baptized, I did that. Am I just waiting for heaven, or is there something here? See, and the gospel kind of misses that entire from here to there that we talked about on Wednesday night, right? The justification, the sanctification, the glorification, all this. Or as we look at today's passage, the mission of the gospel spreading. We miss that. right? That Jesus is alive today, not just in eternity when we get to heaven, but he's alive and reigns as Lord, as King today. And so the gospel in America typically is missing this part that should be the biggest component to our life. Because when we come to faith, it doesn't stop, but it starts... And it doesn't start when we get to heaven, it continues. And so we're missing this chunk of the gospel. And so it's like that, it feels like the apostles here are hearing that they're believing in Jesus but they haven't quite heard everything they need to hear yet, and even if they had for sure, the power of the gospel has not landed yet. Right, that the Holy Spirit is starting to cause people to turn to Jesus, but there's, there's something missing in them and their lives that they're missing something. So they go to take that to them. So what does that look like? Maybe they're struggling to follow Jesus faithfully, right? They're struggling to turn away from what they did worship to Jesus alone. Maybe they're struggling to overcome the life or the, or the, the, the persecution like, like Philip's being chased out of town. Maybe they're struggling to experience some of that. We don't know. We just know there's something missing we know what it is, and we know why the apostles get there. so maybe maybe philip 's gospel is just missing a component i don 't know, but the good news of this again, today is just all good news. The good news of that is that God is sovereign, God sees that God sends the apostles to them. like hey, I think you're missing a key component to the gospel, which is that in the resurrection that you get new life, and that that life is applied to you by the Holy Spirit living within you, and don will see that in you yet so God is sending the apostles to go live that out with them. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So now we have Simon again. Who it says believed... But then his eyes were kind of fixed on what Philip was doing, not on the person and work of Christ. And so the apostles come out to kind of finish or get the people over the finish line into where they should be in their faith and to bring this understanding of what the Holy Spirit does, who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, why it's important, and, and kind of brings that to them and prays for them, and things change for them. All of a sudden, they're now walking more in the power of the gospel, right? They're, now they're kind of living empowered to be different, to be transformed, Notice it doesn't say anything flashy happens, it doesn't say anything crazy, it's just they're missing this empowering of the Holy Spirit, and then they have it. The Holy Spirit is is missing here, and then the apostles come and teach them and pray for them, and now they're able to live out that gospel more fully, or they're able to live out their life in Christ the way it was designed to be. And so now Simon the magician, who all along has been eating up this glory for himself, he sees this, and he wants that. And so we offer the apostles. hey, like, can I buy that? Right? Kind of like you could go into a magic shop today and pay someone to teach you how to do that. And you could do that. And then you could practice it and you could get good at it. And all of a sudden you can do a card trick, right? The Holy Spirit's not a card trick. And the apostles are not magicians. And the power of the gospel is not theirs to give, but Christ alone. And so He's trying to buy, he's trying to be, and, and, and just it's even, he kind of betrays his heart. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the spirit. Note how, notice how involved he is in this, what he wants, right? It's not, hey, can I buy it? Because there are going to be other people to come to faith and I want them to live lives that are glorifying to Jesus. He's not about the other people, he's about himself. Here's what I want and I'll pay for it. And you're going to see how broken... And kind of corrupt that is. It's not super unlike the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Who wanted to be viewed this way and were willing to pay for it, but their heart was far from God. Right? And so he's offering to buy. So what do we do with this? We, we see people come in and at generations like, if this is you, you know how this looks. Like We walk with people who come to faith, who profess a belief in Jesus, who desire to be baptized, we meet with them. We talk to them. We, we, we want to make sure that a, a clear understanding of the gospel has been presented, right? Here's what the gospel is and maybe what it isn't. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's what you're, if you're, if you want to be baptized, here's what you're saying yes to. Here's what you're saying no to for that matter. Here's what it looks like to live for Jesus. And sometimes people say all the right things and do all the right things and get baptism and then fall away really quick. Jesus tells a parable about this. He says, a sower goes out to sow seed. And some of the seed, it falls along the hard path, like the sidewalk. And the birds come to steal away the seed. And he says, then some other seed, it falls among the rocky soil. And it sprouts up really quick, but it has no depth. The rocks are in the way. And so when the sun comes out, it just dies. Some other seed, he says, falls in in this soil that has a lot of weeds and thorns in it. And as it starts to go, it tries to grow, but the weeds and the thorns, they just crowd it out and it dies. He says, but some seed falls in good soil. And it grows and produces a harvest, right? It grows and does what it's called to do. And he ends up explaining that to the disciples. He says, well, this is really about your heart. Your heart is the soil that the gospel, the message of the gospel, the good news is going out to. Your spiritual heart, if you will, not your heart that pumps blood. He says that sometimes people have a hard heart, and it just, they're just not hearing it. And the gospel just kind of goes right past them, right? But some respond, and, and then the cares of this world choke out their faith, right? They're too invested in this world that they can't grow in the kingdom. They're too invested on earth to be in the kingdom of God. And so they die away. He said and the other ones are sown among the, thieves, the, the, the weeds and the thorns, He says that tries to grow up, but the the persecution and oppression, the pushback in this world, just chokes it out. See, Philip could have just been pushed away from the gospel because of the persecution, but instead, he's actually pushed out of Jerusalem, but he hasn't lost a step with Jesus. And see, Simon shows up, and he believes and is baptized, but then what we see pretty quickly is his heart's not in the right place. And see, we experience that here. And it's heartbreaking. I can tell you from the pastoral side. It's heartbreaking to see somebody genuinely respond what we think is genuine response and to see them fall away and struggle. Because really what happens is we love them and we want God's best for them. If it's you, we want God's best for you, whatever, however that looks. But sometimes we want God's best for them more than they want God's best for them. And sometimes those clear conversations we've had are just harder than they anticipated. And that's where Simon is. Philip preached the gospel. He believed. He got baptized. But Simon is off track. His head's in the wrong place, right? So back to him. Verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So Simon believed and was baptized, but in his heart, he was pursuing the wrong things. He hadn't lost sight of this world yet. Right? Jesus says, listen, we're not a part of this world. We're of the kingdom. You have to die to yourself and live for me. And Simon didn't get that message. And so Simon is stuck in this world, though he wants to believe in Jesus. Maybe maybe his mind has agreed that this story about Jesus, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, maybe in his head he's like, that's true, I believe that. But it hasn't changed his heart to where he is willing to live for Jesus and not for this world. Instead, what we see is his heart, hey, I'll pay for that because that's rad. And I want to be able to do that. Not understanding what that is. That that is the power of God, who indwells every believer, transforming transforming them into the image of Jesus. And so he offers to buy it. And Peter tells him, you are so far, your heart is evil. Now notice what what Peter gives the prescription, right? So if that's somebody we know, if that's you, if that's me, whatever that is, he tells him, here's your issue, right? You have neither partner or lot in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. The issue is your heart, he says, right? You're too in love with this world. That's your issue. He says in verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray that God will forgive you, that God will change your heart. So what do we do when, when we have somebody who, who is it's just, they said they believe, maybe they say they believe, but they're not there, what do we do? We pray for them. Well, if that's you? What do you do? You, you repent. I mean, that, that's the answer, right? You give up this world, you live for Jesus. You lay down this world, and, and you, you are you know, kind of crucified with Christ. You die to this world, you live for Jesus. You repent, and you pray. We repent, and we pray. So I'll put this on the screen, the work of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling work of the Holy Spirit causes transformation in our lives. All who are in Christ will be transformed by the Holy Spirit, Throughout our lives, I want to, no matter how long you live in Christ, I don't care if you came to faith 80 years ago, you should be being transformed daily, right? Forever. Now it's incremental. You may not see the change from yesterday to today, but you should be able to look back a year or six months or whatever it is. You should be able to see where God is taking you. You should know in your heart what needs to change as you spend time in scripture and in prayer. You should know like this has got to go. Like, I know God's calling me out of this. And then months from now, you should be able to look back and go, okay, I see where God has taken me, right? The transformation is ongoing. But the Bible says if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, right? Like then, and that's in the present tense. Paul, who lived probably a, a, a more holy life than most or many or maybe everybody, not sinless, but lived a pretty faithful life, right? Wrote a lot of the Bible and Planted a lot of the first churches. And he says, there's nothing good that lives within me. He asks a question, he says, why do I not do the things that I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things that I want to do? And he has, his answer is, it's sin. It's sin that lives in me. So if Paul needed daily transformation, if I do, if you do, then we all do. It's ubiquitous. It's universal. We all need daily transformation. Here's how Jesus said it in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this is before he goes to the cross, teaching, listen, you will have, these li- you'll have the Holy Spirit in you, living water, constantly transforming, nourishing, growing, maturing you. But that's the Spirit in you. There's no change. We've got to back up a step. Say, okay, where do we need to repent and pray and lean into Jesus or lean into the Spirit? Verse 23. He says, for I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. This is Peter continuing to Simon. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Bond, like you're trapped in sin, is what he's saying. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He said, well, then pray for me. Because clearly I'm off track, right? Now, hopefully, this is the pivot for for Simon. Hopefully, this this is the point where he lays down his life and and follows Jesus. But the story's not about Simon, right? It's how the Holy Spirit is moving through Samaria. But I would ask you at this moment, like, consider your life. Is your your life marked with the evidence of the Spirit transforming you, right? And if not, it doesn't mean that your baptism didn't work or that, you know, however, whatever you did. it It just means you're clinging to this world and the call is to repent. The call is to lay this world down and turn towards Jesus, right? As Scripture says, to so fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? Who for the joy before him laid everything down and went to the cross, that we would lay it down and die to this world, that we would, that we would live for Jesus. So consider your own life. Verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So, notice again, the emphasis is on the gospel and Jesus. As these men of God return back to Jerusalem, they preach along the way. Verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court of the official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, notice, Holy Spirit tells Philip, go over and join his chariot. So there's a new scene here. So Philip leaves where he was. He's traveling towards Gaza, a place you never hear about today, right? And he's going there. And along the road, he meets a, an Ethiopian official, right? A eunuch from Candace's court. That's what, that's what we, we hear about. Who is a worshipper of God? He went to Jerusalem. He probably went to Jerusalem to worship. He's returning, and he's reading scripture, right? He's he's reading the Bible. He's reading the Old Testament. We would call it the Old Testament, but that's all that was written. That's what he's reading, right? So he's probably either an Ethiopian who converted to Judaism or a Jew who was a part of the dispersion when persecution hit. Maybe he lands in Ethiopia. I don't know his family, but somehow he's a worshipper of God not a follower of Jesus, but he's a worshiper of God and he's reading scripture. So he's missing something. He's never heard about Jesus. But again, here's the good news. God has a plan, right? And God, by the Holy Spirit, is going to send Philip to be the answer, right? To be the plan, if you will. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So we see the Holy Spirit send Philip to a man who is following God, but is missing Jesus. Right? And he's reading scripture. And if you know scripture and you see this, you're like, I totally know what he's reading. Right? Like you can just tell, like, I kind of know what's coming and then we'll see it in a second. But there's this famous piece of Isaiah that we're going to see in a minute. Right? Right? but he is, a, is genuinely trying to follow God, right? He's also genuinely missing a component that is critical, Jesus, right? But God is good. God is sending Philip. The Holy Spirit directs Philip and, and, gives him, and kind of gives him that entry point. Here's what he's doing. I want you to go talk to him. So Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone teaches me? See, scripture requires a guide. Now, this is where cults go wrong, I'm not the guide, right? I participate with you with the guide who is the Holy Spirit, right? I'm not the only one who has the special revelation, right? Otherwise, leave, run, run for the hills, right? Because it's not going to go well. Don't leave now, dude. All right, so uh, I just lost an elder to that comment, so all right. The Spirit is our guide. So here's a note for you. The work of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling work of the Holy Spirit empowers us to learn and understand Scripture. How it applies to us and how to live it out in our lives. Right? It's the Spirit. Right? My words do nothing. Empowered by the Spirit in your heart, softened by the Spirit. Great. That can do something. But apart from the work of the Spirit, I got nothing for you. Apart from the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit, I have nothing. I have nothing to give you. But with the word of God and the Holy Spirit, I have a lot to offer, but not because of me, but because I'm in the power of God with the word of God, and you're the people of God, right? So John 16, here's what Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Notice, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus again, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Right? There are churches out there that give themselves to chasing and pursuing and glorifying, supposedly at least, the Holy Spirit. But not Jesus. As if Jesus was this entry point, but we move on to advance things. The Holy Spirit will always glorify Jesus. And he does so by teaching us the word of God. Causing us to learn and understand and how to apply it. And gives us the strength to obey. It's a work of the Spirit from front to back. So back to Philip, verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is it about himself or about someone else? Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. It's about a man, a person, right? He, didn't, he went silent. Justice was denied him, right? His life is taken away from the earth. Whew. Came back. All right. So, and Philip just is asked an honest question. This Ethiopian just says, okay, is is Isaiah, because it's from Isaiah, right? Is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? So, if you're ever asked this question, this is like someone got out a little tea, they put a ball on it that's the gospel, and it's your turn, right? You're like, sweet, pow! You're just ripping this one out, right? This is that passage. This is 800 years before Jesus. Is becomes human, is incarnate, right? The promise that he would suffer and die for our sins is laid out by the prophet Isaiah, and that he would resurrect from the grave, giving us new life. I mean, this, again, is so teed up, but it's not a human message. See, Philip may have everything teed up for him, but it's the Spirit that's done this. It's the spirit that led him over. It's the spirit that is causing the Ethiopian to ask Philip this question, right? It's the spirit that sent him over there. And now it's going to be the the, the spirit that gives Philip the answer and, and, and the Ethiopian the ears to hear. Because this is a work of the spirit. But the message is this, that there's a God who created you and loves you, designed you, and your design is to be a worshiper of God. That you, me, the Ethiopian, Philip, the apostles... Moses, Abraham, you pick. We were created to be worshipers of God. And worshiper means that we give our lives to follow and obey Jesus. Or stay with, we'll follow and obey God, right? That our lives are meant to glorify God. But all of us choose sin. We've inherited sin. We choose to sin. We choose to do what's wrong. And again, like we just said, Scripture says, if you say you don't sin, you're calling God a liar. So if if we all sin, let's not be calling God a liar, right? Let's not go there. That'd be another sin. Thank you. So we're separated from God by sin. Right? Like infidelity in the relationship to the point of it's, just, it's irreparable and we can't fix it. So Jesus comes and enters into human history, becomes fully human while remaining fully God and, and lives the life that you and I are called to live of always bringing glory to God and he lives it perfectly without sin. He does all that God has called him to And avoids all that God has said, don't do. And then he goes and willingly trades his life for my life and your life, for Philip's life and for the Ethiopian's life. And he gives his life on a cross in fulfillment of Isaiah's words hundreds of years before. That God had promised this is how Jesus would come and save. And and Jesus comes and he willingly nails is nailed to a cross. He willingly takes the, the shame and the humiliation, the punishment, the pain. He willingly takes the wrath of God that God pours out on him. As Jesus Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at that moment that God has turned away because he can't see the sin that you and I have committed that's been placed on Jesus. That he must separate himself so that the full punishment of our sin must be poured out on Jesus. So when we say that you are saved by grace, as, it, as, as in it costs you nothing, you can do nothing to earn it, just understand it may be free to you, but it's not cheap. It costs Christ everything. That he suffered on our behalf, that he was separate from God for the first time ever. I don't even know how the triune God can be separate of one another. But well, that's what happens. That he must endure our punishment so that we can be reconciled to God. So that when, when God sees us, he sees a, a debt paid for. He sees a slave to sin ransomed. He sees an orphan adopted into the family. That we receive all the benefits of Christ and his perfection and his obedience and his victory. We receive all of that. And then we spend a lifetime with the Holy Spirit applying that to our lives. Until the day where we stand before God and are judged because of Christ's faithfulness, not because of our faithlessness. And so it's this point in Isaiah here, where Isaiah is promising that this will happen, and it happens 800 years later, and then you fast forward 50 years after that ish, and here comes an Ethiopian reading it and not understanding it, but the Holy Spirit has an answer for this. God is sovereign and God is good, and so He is sending Philip to answer this man's question because he is a he's a follower of God. He's just missing Jesus, and and being a follower of God is not enough we'll see that next week. You can be zealously, passionately a follower of God and be zealously and passionately wrong. That's next week's message. But God in his goodness is sending Philip. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Because this scripture completely and fully points to Jesus. All of scripture points to Jesus, but this one's, this one's just there. So here's a note for you we'll put on the screen. The work of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit empowers us to share scripture and disciple others in the Bible. All, hear me, all who are in Christ are called to disciple others. All who are in Christ are called to lead others, disciple, teach others scripture. Now you may hear that and think, okay, I'm not qualified. Well, then your job is to get qualified, right? Right? Your job is to pass on. And if you are here and you know one Bible verse, then you know one Bible verse more than a lot of people. And you can teach that to someone else. Granted, you're going to run yourself into questions and things that you don't have answers for. Be humble enough to say, I don't know, and let's get answers together. But you're called, I'm called. I'm not called because I'm a pastor. I'm, a call, I'm called because I'm a follower of Jesus. And you're called as followers of Jesus to teach others by the power of the Spirit. Verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? So Philip's gospel has obviously included this, this key piece of identifying yourself with Jesus. That one becomes a follower of Jesus, that he is baptized. He identifies with the death of Jesus. And as he comes up out of the water, with the resurrection of Jesus. And that he is baptized into Christ. And and if at all possible, baptize into a local church at the same time. Now, that's not going to be possible here. They met on the middle of the road. Philip's going that way and Ethiopian's going that way. But the Ethiopian desires to be identified with Christ, that outward symbol and sign of what's gone on and changed inside of him. And so he says, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Right? And the answer is going to be nothing. But remember Simon earlier. He believed and he ended up being baptized, but he wasn't rooted in Jesus. right? He was off track and that came out later. And we hope that Simon learned his lesson and, and truly came to faith, but we can't always make sure that the person who wants to get baptized is truly in their heart, fully committed. We can do our best, but we can't, we're not the Holy Spirit. So we do our diligence, but then we also know that the promise of baptism is the Holy Spirit, right? That when Peter preaches, and they say, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for the generations to come. Right? they promise is the indwelling life of the Holy Spirit. And that we, we can't do that apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can't live for Jesus without the very power Jesus said you need. And so sometimes when you see a genuine profession of faith, you, you, you do your, what you think is a genuine profession of faith. We as a church, we do our best to ask questions, share the gospel, make sure it's understood, and then we baptize them. We want to baptize them as soon as we can because the promise on the other side of baptism is the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit that causes you to hear and come to faith, but the Holy Spirit that indwells you and causes you to live for Jesus. And so we want that for everyone. But we don't want to give false assurance either. Like Simon, who thought he was on track but was off. Verse 38. And he commanded, this is Philip, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The Spirit redirects Philip one more time. The unit goes home to go back to Ethiopia, a worshiper of Jesus. So what do we do here? What do we, what do, we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? Rightwise, well, ask, what's, what's your takeaway today? Like, What is something you heard that you want to apply to your lives today? So here's some conversation starters, some ideas. For me, I'm not naturally evangelistic, but I want to trust the Spirit to use me more in those evangelistic conversations. Right? Those are not my nature. Those are not what I'm drawn to. I have to work at because I'm, I'm with the church so often. I have to work at those relationships outside the church to have a place to share Christ and then be faithful to that. And it's not my nature. But that is what God has called me to. So I want to trust the Spirit to use me more in those contexts. If you're, we would just say, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been walking with Jesus for quite some time, if you're mature in your faith, this is for you. You are called to disciple others by the power of God's Spirit, not by your life experience, not by your knowledge, but by the power of the Spirit. And you should never stop discipling others until the day you stop breathing. For if you're new to the faith, if you're a new believer, you are empowered to learn and apply scripture to your lives. The Holy Spirit inside of you teaches you and helps you apply scripture to your lives and then helps you live it out. And then as you begin to mature, you will also begin to pass that on to others. You will also disciple others, especially if you have a family with your kids. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet today, the Holy Spirit changes hearts and empowers repentance if that's not you, pray that God will change your heart. If you hear this gospel message and, and you, you want to be a follower of Jesus, your next step is to repent and follow Jesus because the Spirit's already speaking to you. Because he's softening your heart to the truth of the gospel. So turn from that, see me, see, see one of our elders, even the one that walked out in the middle of the message, you can see him too. <laughs> Parents that have kids, Do you teach your kids to exalt Jesus and not themselves? The Holy Spirit in us always glorifies Jesus. Theology and and, and biblical scholars have nicknamed the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit is always pointing to Jesus, never to himself. Do we pass that on to our kids that our kids are to be about Jesus, not about their latest accomplishments, their grades, their sports, their athleticism, their achievements? but to be about Jesus, even when they have all those things. Are they pointing? Are you teaching them that their life is to point to Jesus? All right, let's take three, four minutes. Turn to some people around you. Make sure nobody gets left out, please, and just share. What's your takeaway? What's something you heard today that you want to apply to your life this week?